Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Well, good morning. Thank you, Amy. My name is Josh. If I haven't met you, it's great to be with you. Great to open up the scriptures today. I want to join Bob and Amy in welcoming the mothers and just thanking mothers for their, their labor of love, raising kids, showing up to, to little people, and then showing up even to the little people when they grow up and have different, sometimes even harder problems <laughs> than when they, they are little. And um, if you're wondering, uh, I tried to pick the most Mother's Day appropriate text ever. I was like, what passage in Scripture just says motherhood? Um, but if you think about it, if you're here today and you're, you're feeling a little you know, down on yourself, maybe you have a rough relationship with your mom or regrets about your own mothering or whatever, I can promise you that you are not as bad as Herodias <laughs> in our text. Uh, worst mom in the Bible word, word I think. Um, uh, so anyways, uh, but at the same time, on a serious note, uh, Mother's Day is a sweet, can be a sweet day, a sweet day of celebration and honoring the women who have poured into us and feeling loved uh, as, as moms. Um, but it, it can also be a day of a lot of pain. Uh, Bob mentioned some, some of us recently have, have said goodbye to, to our mothers or some of us had mothers that did the best they could, but that, that left a lot of holes, a lot of gaps, a lot of wounds. And so this day where everybody's you know, celebrating and going out to brunch really can bring up a lot of pain. And uh, our text today is as ugly as it is, I think offers a lot of comfort uh, for us, uh, for those who have ears to hear. Uh, I was thinking about my life and its relationship to this passage or, or vice versa, and it made me think of my first job as a pastor right out of seminary. Uh, where God, uh, in his manifold wisdom and kindness, uh, sent me into a, a very difficult situation. Um, it turned out to be one of the hardest things I've done, but as I said, it was, it was just one of God's kind, kindest gifts. He just knew exactly what I needed. It was him being a, a loving father. So I went from seminary, which is a great experience, and a job at a church that was full of young people and energy and growing really fast, uh, and, and I went out uh, to my first job as a pastor full of energy, that same energy and ideas and vision and excitement, uh, changed the world. Uh, and I went to a small town, a small church, a small 140-year-old church uh, in, in this little university town in Michigan. Uh, but I was pumped. I was excited to be there. I was like, let's do this. Let's see what God wants to do. Um, and the, that first year was amazing. Uh, the first year was super exciting. The church grew, kind of instantly getting there. Some more young people joined that were excited to belong. And I uh, got involved in the town and became the executive director of the Downtown Business Association, uh, which was kind of a, a random like part-time gig on the side, but uh, was super exciting. And I pitched this vision to the downtown business association board and I was like this is what I'd love to do as the director and and they're like yeah that's that's great come and do it it was just a a, a time of incredible potential you know I was just like it's this is my time to shine and I would go for runs through the town just thinking like god this favor is amazing like revival is is coming uh, and from that early high point it was a steady 
and sometimes drastic descent into what honestly would look like failure uh, to, to almost anyone looking from the outside in. Uh, the Downtown Business Association decided that they didn't actually want that vision that I had originally pitched to them. And it ended in this, like, it, it's stranger than fiction, like this weird dramatic coup where some guy, business owner in town who wasn't even on the board, like, did this mutiny and took over as president and director while I was on vacation and, like, ousted me from the position. It's like, okay, you can have the Downtown Business Association. Like, I wasn't going to, you didn't have to wait till I was gone, you know. And in uh, and the, and the church, what was it was a sad story. We had some sweet times of looking at Scripture, trying to build our, our church, re-look re at our church around what the Bible says the church can be and do and op how it operates. And we experienced conflict after conflict. And at one point, also stranger than fiction, uh, a new person came into our building uh, and she was met by some people in the lobby who told her not to come. It's I mean, stranger than fiction, but it was like it was like an anti-welcoming team. I was just with our welcoming team in the lounge this morning, super thankful for them. Uh, step one of being on the welcoming team. Don't tell people to, to leave. Uh, and, and so it's just a weird, weird season. A lot more stories I could tell about all that. Um, but, you know, Camille and I left that town with very little to show for our efforts in terms of a, uh, you know, in terms of, of worldly fruit or external results or whatever. And, and of course, you know, I was even younger and dumber then than I am now and made mistakes. And again, it was God's kindness to send me out to learn and minister and preach and try things. You know, they say, your first 200 sermons are really bad. And so God sent me to that church to get, you know, 200. So I got about 200 sermons in. So they, they got the, the worst ones. And you're like, those were the bad ones? You know, like, I'm still, I'm still getting better. Thanks for sticking with me. But one of the amazing paradoxes of my, of my life was that rough season, that steady descent was such a gift of God because, for a lot of reasons, but it was, it was a season where I felt so desperately the need to cling to him. I felt incredible intimacy with him, uh, deepened our relationship in a really sweet way. It, it refined some of the, the youthful ideas, uh, ideals I had, some of the, the visions I had for church that were way more kind of rooted in this onward and upward lie or trying to be impressive rather than what biblical faithfulness looked like. And he humbled me and showed me my limits and weaknesses. And um, I, it, it, was, it was just a, a really rich season internally, spiritually. And I was blessed with some great mentors during that season. And one of them, Lou, uh, would, would ask me, Josh, what's the number one mark of success in ministry? And the answer, uh, which he'd asked me that in the times when I never wanted to give this answer, uh, was whether I myself am growing in intimacy with God. And what we would say, what good is it if you gain the whole world ministry-wise, if you gain the whole world in ministry, but lose your own soul? And Lou, Lou would also say, God will break you so he can use you. It's not what you want to hear when you're, when you're young and have visions of, you know, church growth and all those exciting things. But that's the way of Jesus. Unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit as the scriptures say. And so I, it's a little, I, I'll be honest, feel a little insecure sharing about my failures in ministry, but I go into all of that because today in Mark chapter six, 
uh, we, we see this downward trajectory beginning in Jesus' life. For the first five chapters, it's been kind of like this. It's kind of been up and to the right. Or I guess this would be up and to your right. Um, you know, we, we see miracle after miracle, Mark showing us systematically that Jesus has all power and all authority over everything. And he's raising people uh, from the dead, calming a massive hurricane, casting out demons, all these things. But here in 6, we saw last week that Jesus' hometown rejects him. And, and today we see Jesus' cousin, his ministry partner, end his ministry by being executed as a result of just senseless evil. This evil mess of rich, powerful, wicked people. This trend begins here in 6 and, and continues for, for the rest of the book. And it's so so important for us to see this trend, to let Scripture define what is normal when it comes to Jesus, his ministry, his way of life, and what it means to follow him as the king. Because if we're going to follow the king, we have to acknowledge that we follow a crucified king. One of my favorite writers calls this the downward ascent. I love that term. It's a it's an oxymoron. It's I mean it, it's a paradox, a, a, a contradiction of terms, uh, but it it is true. <laughs> when we look at Jesus, the downward ascent of Jesus is both down and up at the same time. It's both down in the sense that on the outside looking in, it looks like failure. It looks like losing, but in God's upside down kingdom, it also brings us up. And, it, and it's distinctly different from the American dream, the prosperity gospel, whatever you want to call it, this narrative that's so deeply, I think, more than we even realize that's woven into our values or our expectations for life is that life should always be up into the right. I mean, it's just the, the stories that we celebrate, our mythologies, our, you know, our heroes, our, the rags to riches, the pursuit of happiness, the zero to hero, you know, the startup company in a garage that now runs the world. I mean, we are a superpower that began with just a few scraggly bunch of people sailing across the Atlantic uh, and, and now a, a powerful company or country. And so I feel like deeply woven into just the fabric of our, uh, of our cu culture, of our expectations for life is that we should, we should always be winning. And if we're not winning, something's wrong and that we should shut everything down. If we're good people, if we work hard, then we'll be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. I mean, even our, our economic model is based on continuous expansion, perpetual growth of our economy into infinity. Like, that's the only way that our global economy continues to exist. That's another sermon, kind of scary. But over, over and against the world's defining narrative, the world's way of operating, and society's expectations is the story of Jesus. It's a different story. It's a different narrative. Uh, and I have two hopes for us this morning. The first is for those of us here today who feel broken, who feel that downward descent, who feel hopeless and stuck, beaten up. I hope you can see God seeing you in your sorrow, seeing that, that your experience of life as this downward trajectory or of suffering after suffering, roadblock after 
roadblock is not outside the norms of what Scripture sets out for us. It's not outside the experience of Jesus and his closest followers, but you are in great company. And I hope that you can let the story of Scripture define your expectations and and encourage you in that disappointment. Because I think it is in sorrow, it is in suffering that God often does his best work. And the second group, uh, the hope that I have for the second group is, is maybe some of us who have experienced the American dream for much of our life. We've experienced this up and to the right trajectory and done our best to keep that trajectory going, continuous expansion uh, of our lives and you know, whatever. And the invitation here is to, to just kind of ask some questions of yourself, uh, of God, and consider the degree to which you're following a crucified Savior or you're following the American dream, the script that you might have been handed by the culture rather than the Holy Scriptures. If we're following a crucified king and allowing his priorities and calling to shape our lives, then the story of perpetual growth and comfort and upgrade, upgrade, upgrade doesn't always fit. And so the question is, are there commands and callings as we look at the story of John the Baptist here that that come to mind that you've ignored because it would cost you something? It would start that upward or stop that upward trajectory or slow it down. My prayer is the Holy, Holy Spirit would, would convict us of ways we've neglected to follow uh, the, the downward ascent of Jesus because of competing narratives or false narratives of success. So let's dive into our text, verse 14. King Herod heard about this, uh, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So this is Mark giving us a little update on what the polls are saying about who Jesus is at this point in the story. And Mark's kind of literary structure of the book, he's, he's set it up around this question, who is Jesus? And he set it up as dramatic irony because the first sentence of the book, he says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So as a reader, we know from the first sentence, who Jesus is. And then we have the next 16 or 15 chapters uh, seeing people try to wrestle with that question. So it's so like we know the whole time are waiting for people to get in. So this is a little update halfway through the book where some people are saying, uh, saying that he's a prophet, he's, a, he's Elijah. Uh, and then some people are rejecting him, like his hometown, straight up rejecting him, which is scary and sad. And then some people are calling him uh, John the Baptist. So the whole Elijah prophet thing might sound nice, respectful. It's least rooted in scripture. Uh, it's not an outright rejection like Jesus' hometown. But question, what do you miss out on if you reduce Jesus to just a prophet? Pretty much everything. Uh, prophet Jesus is not God with us. Prophet Jesus can't save us from our sin. He can't restore us to intimacy with God. He's not Emmanuel. And this is true for many people today. General or vague respect or appreciation for Jesus just does you no good. 
and probably means you haven't actually read what Jesus said and did in the scriptures because he just doesn't leave a respectable, good teacher interpretation on the table. The second thing we see from this opinion poll is Herod's paranoia. The whole, is this John the Baptist back from the dead thing? Uh, is Herod being haunted by guilt? Which we see the backstory that Mark gives us next, verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had bound him and put him in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet liked to listen to him. So this story is about as close to clickbait as you're going to get in the Bible. Uh, you know what clickbait is? You probably clicked on it, even if you don't know what it is. It's like you're checking the weather, and it's like, look at how ugly this person who used to be beautiful is, like, you know, or, or whatever, the, the, these ridiculous things, like Nicole Kidman's wardrobe fail after her boyfriend steals her money or, or something like that. Um, but this story involves the, the three, the, the unholy trinity of clickbait or tabloid. It's, it's the rich and famous people, it's a royalty, it involves sex, and it involves violence. It's, it, this is an R-rated story. But here's the context. Jesus and his people, the Jews in Israel, are a country under foreign occupation uh, from the Roman Empire. They've, they've taken over the country of Israel. And years ago, Herod the Great, not this Herod, this Herod's dad, was the Roman king over this region. And he's the guy that the wise men visited to see Jesus, if you remember that story. And he was the maniac who ordered boys under the age of two murdered uh, to try to protect his own throne that not-so-cozy part of the Christmas story. Uh, so Herod the Great died and had four sons, and his kingdom was split up into fourths. So each son got a fourth of the kingdom. That's why you might see the term, you know, Herod the Tetrarch. It means Herod the fourth. Um, so just imagine what Herod Antipas, the this Herod in our story, Herod Jr., if you will, what his life must have been like. If your dad is the kind of guy who had 10 wives and ordered the execution of every boy under age two, uh, he probably saw a lot of crazy things. And we see in the story that the apple doesn't far, fall far from the tree. He was a man of intense security, people-pleasing, and lust. And his family tree was even worse. There's this infographic that I think is up, yep, that kind of maps out some of the, this isn't even like all of the crazy, uh, but it was a crazy family tree. So Herod the Great had 10 wives, summarized uh, on the side there as other wives. Uh, he also had a relationship with his sister and had a child. I'm not going to walk through this whole family tree. The point is just to show you how crazy it is. But Herodias was the daughter of Antipas's half-brother uh, who uh, was murdered by, his, uh, by Herod the Great and a half-sister, which means that Herodias was Herod Antipas's niece. So the two people in our book are uncle and niece. And Herodias, uh, his niece, married originally Uncle Philip, but then Herod Antipas wants his niece to be his wife, so he finagles that by divorcing his current wife, who was from a kind of political marriage from another country, and historians would tell eventually leaves, leads to war with that nation. And Herod's niece leaves one uncle, marries another uncle, and brings her daughter from the first 
marriage. If you didn't follow, follow all that, I barely follow all of it after studying it this week. That's, don't worry about it. I just wanted to sketch out the chaos and dysfunction of this royal family. Like it's childish, senseless, reckless evil tied up in generations of royalty who are fund, whose entire dysfunction and lifestyle was funded by oppressive taxes on the Israelite people. It's just layers and layers and layers and generations and generations of senseless evil and oppression. And John the Baptist was calling out the dysfunction of this family, specifically Herod Antipas and Herod, Herodias' marriage. And it's clear that Herodias is clearly the one who, who wore the, the pants in this relationship. She's like the mover and shaker in this, in this uh, story. She had a grudge against John the Baptist. And Herod just seems to be like a clueless, curious guy. Like, I'm puzzled by you. Like, you're telling me I'm bad, but I want to keep listening to you. And, uh, and so he, he keeps Herodias from killing John the Baptist for a while and tries to, you know, work the middle ground by just putting him in, in jail. So Herod, in our story, Herod Antipas, his household is a mess. Uh, now let's consider, let's contrast that with John the Baptist. If you have your Bibles and want to flip over to Matthew chapter 11, another biography of Jesus, uh, where Jesus is commenting on John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11. Let's start in verse 2. So John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He, went, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to see? Go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Let's stop there for a minute. John is in prison. He's doing his ministry. He gets in prison and he's hearing about everything that Jesus is doing as the Messiah. And he sends the, the, his disciples with a question, which is the subtext of these questions, the, the, of the question, should we look for someone else? Is if you're the Messiah, why am I in jail? Like if you are the Messiah, why am I in jail for doing the right thing? could talk about, we could preach a sermon on many a sermon on Matthew 11. But what I want us to see is that Jesus is honoring John the Baptist as he sits in prison for doing the right thing, for doing nothing wrong. And he says in verse 11, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Do you see this gut-wrenching dichotomy, this senseless evil uh, of the, this royal family and then the greatest born among women who's unjustly being imprisoned for doing the right thing. This is just not how things are supposed to go. And even John the Baptist is like, this is not a, why, how things are supposed to go. What is going on, Jesus? We'll flip back to Mark 6, verse 21. It gets even worse. 
Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed because of his oaths and his dinner guests. He did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison and brought back his head on a platter, presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So Herodias shamely sends her daughter uh, from her ex-husband to go dance for her drunk husband slash uncle and his friends. Uh, most scholars would say contextually, culturally, this is more than likely an erotic type of dance. So Herod and his buddies are ogling his great niece and Herod makes this ridiculous promise. You know, because he literally did not have the power to give away his kingdom. His kingdom was, he was like a steward of a kingdom from the Roman empire, from Caesar. And he didn't even have a full kingdom. He had a fourth of a kingdom. This is like me saying, I will give you whatever car you want, as long as it's a 2012 Honda Fit with a cracked windshield. It's just like, well, you don't have a lot to give away. You can't, you can't really promise a lot. And Herodias seizes on the opportunity. She's a She's the person driving the action and she conspires to murder God's servant. Herod the coward falls right into her trap and he, and he appeases the crowd and his wife. And so we have Jesus's relative, his cousin, this holy man, the prophesied forerunner to God's long-awaited Messiah, executed, beheaded, with his severed head paraded around this wicked palace on a platter. What do we do with this as Jesus followers? Why is this in scripture? Let's draw some conclusions. I have three things for you to consider. The first one is suffering is part of following the king. If you follow Jesus, you will suffer. The way of Jesus is not an up into the right kind of life. Yes, there are times of blessing. Yes, the song is true, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. But the key in that statement is to be happy in Jesus. It's not trust and obey. There's no other way to get everything that you want and live your best life now. It's no to get intimacy with Jesus. The, the, the happiness, the blessing is intimate communion with God. James 1, written to a severely persecuted church, uh, later on in the early church says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds, not if you experience trials, but when. The way of Jesus is not a get out of suffering free card. No, rather the way of Jesus uh, is, I believe, the only thing that can truly sustain the human life in the midst of suffering because he is our suffering servant. The way of Jesus is a, is a joy, is a lightness of soul that can, uh, can allow us to ride the waves of suffering and light, can hold us up and sustain us by the immovable, steadfast love of God from which nothing can separate us. 
And so if you're here today and you're suffering, you can identify with Jesus. You can identify with his people, uh, John the Baptist and people throughout church history who have suffered. You're not alone. God has not abandoned you. You're not outside God's scope of redemption. The second thing to consider is that suffering is an invitation to draw near to the God of all comfort. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, he, he tells the same story in chapter 14. Uh, and look, look what it says uh, right at the end. It says, John's disciples came, took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So here is, this gives us a little, fleshes out the experience for Jesus around the story of John the Baptist. Jesus is in the midst of his three years of ministry, a busy ministry season. It, isn't it crazy? Jesus only did three years of ministry this entire time. These three years that echo, you know, throughout the millennia. And, but he gets this awful tragic news about his cousin's murder. And what did he do? He just blow it off or just repress those emotions? No, he stops, gets in a boat and goes to get alone with God to a solitary place. Jesus was sad. He was heartbroken. He hated this senseless evil that happened to John. And like a well-loved son, he runs to his father. He runs to be alone with his father to receive comfort. Suffering is an invitation to draw near to our father for comfort. This is the single most powerful thing you can do to grow as a human, as a follower of Jesus. The single most powerful thing you can do to keep your soul from bitterness, uh, from hard-heartedness. <clears throat> Psalm 142 and many Psalms talk about pouring out our complaints before God. When is the last time you've done that? When you've just got alone and, and beat your fists against God's chest like a, like a trusting child. This is the beauty and scandal of the gospel is that when we have been made new, forgiven of our sins, adopted into God's family, we're beloved children. God never calls us to be grown-ups. He calls us to grow uh, as beloved children. So we don't have to repress or manage our uh, honest emotions before our father. My son, Johnny, he's five. He's in a big, it's not fair phase. And it feels like he only says it when it's like actually is super fair. <laughs> you know, like he did something wrong and he's getting punished. And he's like, it's not fair. And it's like, it's just funny that you're saying that. But that's what kids do. They just, it honestly feels not fair to him. <laughs> and he pours that out. So when can we say that? Or when can we say to God, God, I hate that this happened. Feels like my whole life has changed and I hate this new life without this person in it. God, it feels like my heart is leaking out of my chest and I'm just gonna dry up like a husk. God, don't you care? Why aren't you listening? For me in times of suffering, I feel like I run out of words to say what I'm feeling to God. And in those times, I typically just pray or write out the Psalms because the Psalms are a lot more brutally honest than often I have courage to be uh, with God. Just letting the words of scripture be my prayers. That I find myself drawn to Psalm 77 a lot where the psalmist cries out, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? 
Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? This is the Bible, everybody. These are the questions God's people have sang and prayed for years as they've gone through suffering. We can pour out our hearts to our loving Father. Suffering presents us with a choice, with a fork in the road. We can let it draw us near to our Father for comfort, let it, let it break us and soften us, like breaking up the ground for growth. Or we can check out, choose the anesthesia of our choice. Just work more, get busier, volunteer at church more, uh, binge TV shows, alcohol, pornography. Choose your numbing agent of choice. But with that same mentor, <clears throat> Lou, I mentioned, I would always say, as I was going through some of those hard times at that first church, is suffering will either make you bitter or better. That's the choice. It's one or the other. There's no, there's no middle ground. Suffering can draw you deeper into God's love as his child, soften your heart, grow you in love and empathy for those around you, or it will harden you and make you bitter, darken your understanding, isolating you, keeping you self-centered and unable to receive or give love. I got to visit Sue Ogden this week in the hospital. Uh, she's here with us, praise God. Um, and it was so sweet to be able to connect with my dear sister, Sue. She was sleeping when I, I walked in, and so I just sat down and waited for a bit, and she woke up, and you know, you know Sue, she, her face lit up. Uh, she's such a joyful person. Um, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor this week, and I moved to sit by her bed and hold her hand, and she started telling me her story, starting from when she was a little girl. And it's a story that has more suffering than I've heard in one story in a long time. A traumatic, abusive home, almost drowning when she was 10 because some older boys dragged her into a river, and she eventually like, had to get, it was up to her to get her siblings and mom out of the house for their own safety, and she had a difficult, lonely marriage, and and as she told me story after story uh, of the suffering and sadness, as she laid in a hospital bed with a brain tumor, I was in total awe. Because if you talk to Sue, you experience the joy radiating off of her body, off of her person. You ask her how she's doing, and she'll tell you everything that she's grateful for. You get her talking about God, and she'll talk about him like he lives with her in her apartment, like they had breakfast together. Uh, like, I have to find myself double-checking, like, wait, is this like a friend that stopped by? Like, oh no, this is just how you experience the presence of God in your life. She's talking about the source of love and redemption of suffering that according to her, according to her testimony, is why she's still alive. Sue has shown up to more suffering than probably most of us ever will. And that experience, and in that experience, she's found deep refuge with the God of all comfort. And so she could sleep peacefully, even in a hospital room with a brain tumor, and wake up and testify to how good God has been to her. This is the downward ascent of Jesus in the life of a real person, our sister Sue. This is the power of God's love in the face of what seems like senseless evil. And it's the invitation to all of us. What will you do with your suffering? 
Do you today need to confess that you've allowed your suffering to make you bitter and not better? That you've not chosen to bring your broken heart to your father and let him hold you in your pain and instead you've taken that broken heart and numbed it with whatever or taken it out on people closest to you. But friend, it's not too late to confess that, to turn to the father's loving embrace. The third thing, which honestly, if it wasn't in the Bible, I'd probably skip this point, but I think it's a straight in our text, is that suffering and mission happen at the same time. We get into suffering, it's so easy to just stop there in God's comfort, and we'll just comfort each other uh, in God's comfort until Jesus comes back. But we see suffering and mission happening at the same time. It's all wrapped up together. There's no time out from the, the mission. Our passage today is what scholars call a Markin sandwich. This is the second Markin sandwich that we've had. Mark just means it's in the Gospel of Mark and a sandwich because it's where the Mark, as is in, in his literary strategy, sandwiches a story with two things. We saw it earlier when Jesus rose the girl from the dead and healed the woman. It's kind of sandwiched uh, around that story. Uh, and this is, this is another one. And right before our sermon text in chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, uh, Jesus has just sent them out. It says, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And then right at the end, uh, after our text in verse 30, it says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So this terrible story of John's murder is sandwiched between the going out and effective ministry of Jesus's disciples. And Mark is making a very important point that Jesus's mission, this preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God is continuing in the midst of this terrible news. John the Baptist was a part of the mission. He played his role and his role came to an end in a way that doesn't make sense to any of us. But the mission continues. John the Baptist is quoted saying in the scriptures, you know, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And we see that happening. And then we see it even expanding beyond Jesus as Jesus passes on the mission, the ministry of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, that life with God under his rule is available to anyone who would repent and receive grace. And the disciples are pumped. Like Jesus is broken hearted. The disciples come back pumped for all the work that they had seen God do through them. This Mark and Sandwich shows us uh, how the kingdom comes. And it doesn't come in an up and to the right kind of trajectory. The great commission that Jesus gives us always happens alongside suffering. Paul would say that we make up in ourselves the suffering, in our own suffering, what was lacking in Christ, which is a super uncomfortable passage. But it's this idea that we see even in Paul's ministry, suffering and mission happen side by side. Jesus himself was a suffering servant. Look with me again at, at this will be up on the screen, you have to turn there. But Matthew's version of this same story of John the Baptist's murder in Matthew 14, 12. When the disciples came and took the body and buried it, they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. 
We'll look at this more next week. But Jesus, in the midst of grieving his cousin and the senseless evil, he tries to get away on a prayer retreat, wanting to rest. But the crowds follow him and he cares for them and ministers to them. Jesus is heartbroken and leaning into ministry. Now, he does eventually get away. He, he finishes feeding, feeding the 5,000, doing all the ministry, and he finally just sends the disciples away, go up on the mountain, like he just got to get away. But we see Jesus allowing himself to be interrupted, even in the midst of suffering, because he's the wounded healer. Isaiah 53 says, by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. He's doing ministry out of his woundedness, out of his weakness, not from a place of like impervious uh, uh, free of pain, but in his pain, moving towards people and their pain with compassion. And I just want us to see that if we're going to follow Jesus, it will mean giving ourselves away, serving others with compassion, even when, maybe especially when it feels like our heart is broken, our heart is leaking out of our chest. We feel so sad and discouraged. Yes, we see in Jesus, we need to get away. And that's probably a word a lot of us more here need to hear, is that we need to get away. If, if things are not working, if our heart is broken, we need to feel the Father's loving embrace. But what I'm saying is that <clears throat> feeling like a spiritual champion is not a requirement for joining Jesus on his mission. In fact, it, it might disqualify you. I mean, the people who thought they were spiritual champions were the ones who killed Jesus. But mission and suffering happen at the same time. It's not a, a hindrance to mission, which I need to tell myself over and over again because uh, it can feel like that. But if we can tap into those feelings of weakness and brokenness, that's when God can be strong, when the Spirit can work through us, can, can tenderize our hearts so that we can move towards hurting people like Jesus, see them lost like sheep without a shepherd, and, and say in gentleness, come with me, come to the good shepherd, come find rest for your soul. It's the downward ascent. And as we are going downward in a worldly sense, we ascend. The ascent is into intimacy with the God of the universe. And the downward ascent is most fully captured in the cross, where Jesus, in one of the most brutal forms of failure, being nailed naked and ashamed to a tree, was lifted up and crowned with the crown of thorns, rejected and despised, powerless and weak, but of course, it was at that precise moment when he was at his most victorious, accomplishing the redemption of the whole world, the forgiveness for your sin and my sin. The Messiah who would overthrow Rome and rise to political power and live this incredible up and to the right life didn't exist. It's not Jesus. Instead, the Messiah was crowned on a cross, bearing our sin and shame. And in his resurrection, he experienced we get victory over that sin and death. So the question for all of us, will we follow the crucified Savior? Will we experience healing and forgiveness in the deep parts of our story, deep parts of our wounds? And then, and then follow the crucified King as, as little many wounded healers, letting the power of God flow through us in our wounds and weakness for his glory to a lost and dying world. Let me pray. tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. 
You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K A R L roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Carl Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.